If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheiks are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or add a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheiks bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212. This is our number two. Of the world, according to Zig, our brand new podcast. With me, your host, John Ziegler. Happy New Year to you. This is the newest free speech broadcasting endeavor. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com, where you can find out everything you ever needed to know about this show, the basic history, all of our archives, as well as a column on why this is now a podcast and no longer a radio show which ended on Christmas Day 2016 as a nationally syndicated program heard on 24 different radio stations for about the last two years plus. The short version of why we changed from a nationally syndicated radio show to a podcast was best summed up by my four-year-old daughter, Grace, on our last edition of the program. It's costing money! Right. (laughs) And I urge you to check out the YouTube video of Grace's Entire appearance on the last radio show at freespeechbroadcasting.com. You will not regret it because it was absolutely hilarious on so many different levels, and I can't possibly explain uh, all of them in the time allotted, even on a podcast. Uh, This is hour number two. We'll be doing two hours each Sunday, uh, depending on, obviously, the news and other circumstances, but that's the basic plan. Each early, each Sunday evening early, probably around 9 p.m. Eastern time, we'll be releasing two hours or thereabouts of podcast material, maybe a little less on slow news weeks. Who knows, maybe more on, on uh, weeks where the news is rather heavy. This is New Year's Day, our first uh, World According to, to Zig podcast. And New Year's Day used to be, and is not this year because it's on a Sunday, and also because the system has so dramatically changed. But when I grew up, New Year's Day was about college football. And I, I'm sad. One of the many things that I'm sad about how our culture has changed, and I know it's all going to get better, right? Because on January 20th, Donald Trump's going to make America great again, right? Of course, right? Yeah, whatever. Anyway, the reality is that one of the things I'd love to go back to if we're going to be nostalgic is the old days of college football when you had four or five really tremendous, meaningful games on New Year's Day, bowl games, instead of this glut of meaninglessness now where 
You've got major stars not even playing in bowl games because they're afraid of getting hurt and damaging their NFL stock uh, value. And I, I just don't see how it can possibly sustain itself. And this playoff system has turned out to be, uh, I think, um, underwhelming to say the least. I mean, the two years that we've had these semifinal games, there's not been one remotely really interesting game, nothing memorable, nothing exciting. We'll see what ends up happening with the national championship game between Alabama and Clemson. They're clearly the two best teams, but the system is now so messed up and it's so unnecessary and such a shame uh, because this could be done in a way that would make everybody a lot of money and make things a lot more interesting and go back to the traditions that made the game great. But much like America, see, one of the the greatest weaknesses for America is that we're so freaking awesome, we can make so many mistakes and still survive. So when you're in a situation where you can sustain yourself despite massive mistakes, mistakes are more easily made. Because everyone says, oh, well, what's the big deal? We're still making money. Everything's still good. Well, college football is the same way. It was such an amazing institution that they could screw it up completely and still make a lot of money and be seen as successful. And that's effectively what's happened. But I still find it to be frustrating. But one of the things that happened this year in the college bowl system is that miracle of all miracles, and I mean this is a miracle, and it's an underrated sports story, partially because of the underlying reason for me mentioning it, which I'll get to momentarily. The story of Penn State making it to the, here to Southern California, where I do the show, to the Rose Bowl after winning the Big Ten Championship is, it's just... It's just flat out ridiculous. From a sports perspective. It's insane. I mean, this was a, a university that, frankly, hadn't been at the top of its football for a while anyway, even before the whole Jerry Sandusky scandal broke. And then they get hit with the, the most draconian, most insane, most unjust, harshest sanctions from the NCAA you could possibly ever imagine. Now, they were later removed and restored because even the NCAA finally realized there was no way to sustain this in a court of law, both legally and factually. Penn State had done absolutely nothing. And as I ended up getting involved in the case, I investigated it more thoroughly than anybody else. I don't believe anybody did anything wrong, including, uh, believe it or not, and I know this is insane to people who don't haven't followed this, including Jerry Sandusky, other than maybe being stupid enough to shower with boys who would end up betraying him for millions of dollars. The reality is, and you can find out all of the information, the hundreds of hours of content that I've created on this that case at our website, framingpaterno.com. That's Framing Paterno. It's not a conspiracy. I'm an anti-conspiracy guy. I'm the only anti-conspiracy person in the whole case. Everyone else believes in crazy, nonsensical conspiracies for which there are, is no evidence. But uh, the framing was intended figuratively, not literally. Although this year, it may have become literal. Anyway, Penn State somehow, despite all this, just a few years after the scandal breaks, wins the Big Ten Championship, comes to the Rose Bowl, and former Penn State great NFL Hall of Famer Franco Harris is a guy who I have become very close to because of our fight for justice in the whole quote-unquote Penn State scandal. And Franco came out here to Los Angeles to attend the Rose Bowl, which will be played tomorrow as 
we taped this. And so yesterday, I met Franco at his hotel, and he was generous enough to do a, a very extensive interview, uh, about 40 minutes, which you're about to hear now, on not just the whole Penn State scandal. This was a wide-ranging interview. It's about life. It's about football. There's even some politics. But we begin with the story of how and why it is that both Franco Harris, NFL legend, and me are completely positive that Penn State and Joe Paterno specifically had no culpability in the whole Jerry Sandusky scandal, and the news media simply refuses to accept that as truth and, in fact, continues to create a very nefarious fairy tale. And that's what it is. It's mythology. What you know of the Penn State scandal is flat-out mythology. So here is my interview from yesterday with NFL Hall of Famer Franco Harris. Hi, Franco. Um, you're here in Los Angeles for Penn State uh, coming to the, uh, the Rose Bowl, which is going to be played in a couple of days. I'm sure that when uh, we met here in Los Angeles a few years ago, when you confronted the NCAA president, Mark Emmert, in uh, an event where you only had uh, about 24 hours of notice that I gave you to come here to Los Angeles to uh, express your discontent with the NCAA sanctions, that you never figured that Penn State would not only get the sanctions removed, but somehow make it all the way to the Rose Bowl so quickly, did you? Although you're such an optimist, maybe you did. What, what would you have said if I had told you, you know what, Franco, in 2017, on, no, on November, or January 2nd, Penn State's going to play in the Rose Bowl with no sanctions? What would you have told me? And I said, John, you don't know your football. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, but you know what, this... Like, I mean, I'm just amazed. And, and like, also, I am so happy and thrilled to, to see it happen. But I tell people that the last five years, we did not have one losing season, which is incredible. Being in the sanctions, cutting scholarships, no bowl games, uh, you, you would think that uh, we wouldn't get the athletes, people would lose enthusiasm and all that sort of stuff. Which was remarkable also is that good athletes and top elite athletes, a few of them were still coming to Penn State, which which is which is kind of unheard of. And and you think about it and you say, Wow, what would make them come to Penn State? All this is going on and and so our legacy and our history and what we stand for does mean something that 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 these young guys put that aside and they came to Penn State and as I said did not have one losing season and in the fifth year since the sanctions to be ranked number five and just as you said be playing in the, in the Rose Bowl Big Ten champions. Uh, um, I, I mean, it's just incredible. And they're fun to watch. And one thing that you see also is that these are great guys. You know what I mean? Uh, uh, you just enjoy the ball players on and off the field. Uh, so um, it just makes you feel good that Mark Emmerich and the NCAA and and 
and, and other people trying to destroy our program, trying to take it down, which these sanctions have done to a lot of schools, but it didn't do it to Penn State. Well, Franco, I'm convinced that if you had not made that trip to confront Mark Emmert, that there's a good chance that none of this, there were a lot of reasons why it happened, but I think that really sent a message to him, and it had to have an impact for Franco Harris to come across the country to confront him the way that you did in a very substantive way about why the sanctions were illegitimate. And, and, with, and obviously the sanctions being lifted prematurely, well, not prematurely, they should never have been involved in the first place, but to be lifted sooner than they were scheduled to be had a major impact on why Penn State was able to survive this. Let's go back five years ago plus when this whole fiasco, the so-called Penn State scandal began. Because what I'm fascinated by, Franco, among many things, in your involvement in this is it, you know, here now you and I know we're in a very weird uh, group of people. We know that the whole thing was basically bullcrap, that Joe Paterno, for 100 percent sure, was innocent. Penn State was innocent uh, and uh, that the media basically created an, almost all of this. That's a very minority opinion. But what I'm amazed by, Franco, is how did you know instantly five years ago without having one one thousandth of the information that we have now, which proves our case. How did you know then when all the media was saying that Joe Paterno was guilty of being a pedophile protector or enabler? How did you know that wasn't true? The only thing we had to go on back then was just a character uh, of the man, what the man stands for. Uh, you're right, we didn't have information. Uh, people were saying a lot of things. Uh, uh, we did, we didn't know, but it just it just didn't sound like this is Joe the way they're describing Joe. And then they were attacking Joe morally uh, that Joe has no morals, that this and that, and all that kind of stuff. And and like I'm saying, this is this is not right. This is not true. And um, and and so when I, I I have to admit being out front and getting out front was something I didn't plan. It was something that just happened on the spare of the moment um, where I took this position and then people wanted to attack me for taking this position. And uh, and then I guess we felt like the fight was on, you know what I mean, where um, they were attacking Joe and, and jumping on me for uh, supporting Joe. And, uh, and it just made me realize more and more that... Uh, uh, these guys don't know what they're talking about. You know, uh, the, I mean, the years that this guy gave to building a football program, building his athletes. Um, uh, when you look at the, just the success of the program, what the program meant, and they're trying to tear this whole thing down. Um, I just couldn't buy it. And uh, 
Well, your instincts were right. I mean, and we've been vindicated more than I even anticipated that we would be based upon the factual evidence or lack thereof in the case. But I'm curious, among the many things we've learned in the last five years, you, you're a guy, your, your whole career, you've dealt with the media a lot. A four-time Super Bowl champion, Super Bowl MVP, Hall of Famer. And I'm guessing that up until this event, you probably had a fairly good relationship with the media. You probably felt pretty good about the news media because they had treated you well, for the most part, through your life. What have you learned about the way the news media works in the last five years based upon what you know about what really didn't didn't happen in the so-called Penn State scandal and what the media has reported? Well, you know, just I guess what a lot of people have seen that uh, uh, it's who gets out with the news the quickest and uh, and not necessarily not necessarily being accurate uh, or having any facts uh, and and like that was really disturbing to see that uh, um, that everybody's jumping on the bandwagon. Uh, uh, everybody's focusing on Penn State, and and that it switched from a Jerry Sandusky scandal to a Joe Paterno scandal, and and because the way that they were were reporting it, that just continued to grow, and to focus on Joe and and on Penn State, and no one worried about Sandusky, and and. Uh, and you, you know you quite don't understand that, uh, uh, and and it was very disturbing to see that, and 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 then just being out in public, seeing how cruel people were, and people believing stuff, and uh, uh, Penn Staters, if they're wearing any type of Penn State identity, that they were being attacked, and uh, um, like I just found it. Uh, Does it scare you, though? Does it scare you that if this happened on this story, that maybe there are other stories out there that the media is blowing in an epic proportion sort of way? Well, like, I know they can do that with a number of stories, but I couldn't believe that they would take someone like Joe Paterno and do it. And without giving him the due respect and the benefit of the doubt and say, hey, wait a minute now. We know what this guy stands for. We we know him for the last 60 years, that Joe Paterno would protect football while a child is being abused. Uh, uh, Joe Paterno would uh, uh, put football first ahead of children. Um, like, I mean, that's... Just not Joe. We know Joe didn't put football ahead of anything. I mean, football meant a lot to all of us, but but we knew that that how we were to develop as young men, our character, um, to follow the rules, um, uh, to get the education. Uh, the education came first, and. Uh, and when you know that sort of thing and 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 like now they're saying all these things that go totally against that uh, it just didn't make any sense and 
then you get to the point where you feel, you know what? Now they're attacking us. They're attacking our program. They're attacking what we stand for. They're attacking our success with honor. They're doing all this with no proof, no nothing. But but you're right, John, um, that there was a lot that we didn't know. But, but I would say that once we start looking at the information, uh, this broke out in November, I would say by January and February, we knew that... Uh, uh, that a lot of people, that the truth wasn't out there. Right. A lot of people were saying stuff. A lot of people were jumping on the bandwagon. Well, well I want to address that issue because, in a way, the people that waited for the facts were at an enormous disadvantage. Because I know a lot of people who wanted to defend Joe but were afraid to because they kept thinking, Oh my gosh, there's got to be something else here. There's got to be more. What, what if there's a buzzsaw somewhere? I don't want to run into this. This is, a, this is a, a, a hurricane. This is a nuclear bomb. And those facts never came. And in fact, the facts have really come out on our side in almost every possible way. And you were the only guy of note that had the instincts and the guts to stand up and do some sort of a counterattack, and I think that you deserve, not only deserve credit for it, but I think it's it's definitely even helped the, the current program and why they're playing in the Rose Bowl today. You mentioned something about, um, you, you know, Joe, and that this you knew this is ridiculous. The big story this year, speaking of media malpractice, was that supposedly Joe Paterno was told in 1971 and 1976 by actual accusers who'd never said anything for many decades, but they did tell Joe Paterno for some reason that they had been abused by Jerry Sandusky. One of those accusations occurs in a year where you are on the team, and Jerry Sandusky was barely even on the staff. Now, what do you think the chances are that in 1971, Jerry Sandusky used alcohol and marijuana to lure a, a victim into Penn State's uh, bathroom, uh, raped the, the, the uh, victim. The victim told Joe Paterno and apparently the athletic director at the time, and no one did anything, and Jerry was allowed to remain on staff on the team that you were playing on. What are the chances of that happening? Uh, you know, John, all this stuff goes, you know, comes out and goes around and around. And there's no evidence and no proof of anything. And then they want people to comment on that. And But does that story it, 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 sound it, it, remotely plausible to you, Franco, well, having been there? Well, you know, I mean, so much of the stuff that has come out just hasn't been the truth. And, and, and sure, I would find something like that very hard, very hard to believe. Um... First of all, when you when you look back at that time, and then they mentioned that they told Joe Paterno, right? Mm-hmm. So, if if that kid, how old would that kid have been? Oh, he was apparently a mid-teenager. Okay, so like if that kid had the drive and determination to reach Joe Paterno, to find Joe Paterno and Joe. And, and and tell Joe Paterno, why wouldn't this kid have gone to the police, right. gone to his parents, gone to other people, 
So you're telling me that the only person that that guy contacted was Joe Paterno. And I can't buy that because if someone has that drive and determination, right. that kid wouldn't just and call that's, one person and, and, and then stop. It makes and never mention it again until all of a sudden $100 million was on the table. <laughs> right, right. Right. I mean, and like I'm just trying to use common sense here. Don't use common sense, Franco. There's no, there is absolutely no room for common sense in this case. Uh, I, speaking of common sense, though, it's something like that had happened. You know how football teams work. I mean, word gets around. You would have heard something about that, would you not have? I mean, I'm sure we would have heard something. Right. No doubt about it. Yeah, there's no way you keep that kind of thing secret on a football team. And it didn't happen. And I happen to know it didn't happen because, and I can say this, you can't because you're Franco Harris, but the attorney in that particular case uh, is someone who's not reputable and made up the story. And I have proof that he's made up similar stories with other, with other clients. Uh, and it's it's not based in fact. And the only corroborating witness is a complete joke. And the story, as you said, makes no sense. Where do you think this is all going to go, Franco? You have been incredibly wise and much more patient than me, <laughs> um, as you know. I'm not a pa- You and I are, are, are very different in a lot of ways, for better or for worse. But no, no, but you've been a driving a driving force here, John, and 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 at times we needed that driving force. Oh no, we're a good team. I mean, we we, we definitely have different strengths and weaknesses. But um, but my point here is that you have been very wise and patient, uh, and in knowing where this whole thing was going to go, and not rushing things, and not taking uh, unnecessary risks. Do you have a sense? I mean, I feel like this thing is dead now, barring some major uh, break on our part, which we, which the powers that be have a huge incentive to not allow us to get, and the truth will never be widely known. What is your sense about where this goes, if anywhere, in the future? You know, John, I do want to say that uh, the last five years, the more I found out about what's going on, you know, what's in our football office and the culture that Joe built and all that sort of stuff. You know, like, you know, your love and admiration and respect and, and respect just grows and grows for this guy. And and you don't say everything is perfect, right? But when people look back and look at his program and and how he ran it, and, you know, they talk about very economically, right? I mean, you know, Joe was tight with... You know, you know, we you know with the funds and uh, uh, like I guess they said that, uh, especially like in the Big Ten, we had the lowest budget for recruiting, and and um, but yet got so much accomplished. And but Joe didn't let politics get involved in his football, and I think sometimes that's the thing that hurt him. He wanted all this political stuff and political people and the powers to be at at Penn State. Hey, don't get involved in my football program. And, you know, because he knows what that power does to a lot of football programs. And But, what do you, what, but, but 10, 20 years from now, is this ever going to get corrected in your mind, Franco? Oh, absolutely. Like, I mean, what we know now, uh, the, the facts that, that, People have 
really, really just, as I said, myself learning more about Joe and mm-hmm. and and what he stood for and 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 what his program stood for, and then when you see human nature of other people, you know, John, when you, when you look at, you know, the jealousies of other people, uh, you know, uh, uh, just the power of other people, uh, Joe not succumbing to a lot of power and a lot of requests and all that sort of stuff. When you see human nature uh, gets to be a part of a, a lot of this, and when people start to see the the personal uh, things that mm-hmm. that that people uh, that people did, um, as in the end, I mean the truth always comes out. Should we want it to be sooner rather than later? But a lot of that information is now there, and. Well, I wish it, I, I wish I, if it, <laughs> if it can be presented in the right way, that's, that's the thing. It is, it is so big. And like, I know you know this and you you know, and, and you realize how enormous and how far reaching this whole subject is. And it's the most fascinating story I've oh, ever heard of. It is so incredible. I mean, it'll blow people's minds when they see just how vast it is and 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 how much it encompasses. I mean, when you draw that circle around this, you know, that circle through the but, last but, five but, years have gotten wider <laughs> and wider and wider. But, but, Franco, I don't know if we live in a world where the truth always wins anymore. I mean, look who we just elected president. I mean, I know you... you... John, 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 you can never... Well, I know... I'm an opt, you know, an optimist, but right. but no, we can never think that way. Like I mean, that can't be part of our thinking. Okay. Uh, well, I want to ask you about your optimism in a second, but I, I do have to ask you one other uh, quick question because I get this a lot from from people who follow this case, and I, and I don't know that you've ever been on the record on it. And I just want to make sure that you are on the record. Uh, you, uh, I believe, you are uh, someone who is in favor of a due process in this case, and that you believe that there should be a new trial in, in Jerry Sandusky's case. Is that accurate? Um, I felt there should be a new trial, and I know they had a new trial. And uh, well, there was and, a hearing. And, there were some hearings. Oh, 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 okay. Like I thought it was a trial. Now, there's not, there's not been a new trial, but there's been hearings in order to try to potentially get a new trial. And um, and I, I, I think, because we've talked about this in the past, that you are in favor of there being a new trial because you want due process and you want the truth. Is that accurate? Oh, absolutely. I want due process and the truth. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and in that first trial, uh, I mean, just a lot of us believe that it just wasn't handled properly and 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 really by everybody i mean right. jury's attorneys and, right. and and everybody concerned right and uh, it was right. seven months after the arrest it was uh, and joe's firing it was a couple months after joe's death it was it was it was basically hysteria surrounding the entire atmosphere the entire environment and regardless of the charges people deserve a fair trial and in my view and i think you 
would agree with this, that no matter what your view is of Jerry Sandusky, that was not the environment to have a trial uh, because this was this is a situation where people were just not thinking straight. I mean, the atmosphere was very much of a, of a witch trial, of a pitchfork situation. And, and I know, having looked at the evidence much more carefully than anyone should ever have to, <laughs> that um, the evidence is, raises grave, grave questions that any of this ever, ever happened to begin with. But um, switching gears, though, from, the, from this story that brought us together, one of the many things that fascinates me about you is something you've already mentioned, is your optimism about life. I find you to be a fascinating character uh, because you are so optimistic and you're known for some things that are rather fortuitous. For instance, the, the most famous play in NFL history, the Immaculate Reception, uh, which is 40, you know, they're still celebrating anniversaries of that. I saw a major article 44th anniversary of the Immaculate Reception. Who celebrates a 44th anniversary, Franco? I mean, Every year. Guys. It's amazing. Every year. Have you? And, and like I call Frenchie Fuqua, Phil Villipiano, every year. You know what I mean? You call the the the, uh, the guy on the defense the, 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 yeah. for the Raiders? Yeah, like the guy that was guarding me. Really? Yeah, and I thank him. <laughs> and what is, every year you, you call him? Yeah. Thanks, Phil. How do you? There's so many questions I have about that whole situation. But have you ever thought much about? You know, you had no business even running down the field at that time. I mean, Terry Bradshaw throws the pass. You most 99 out of 100 guys are just standing watching, but you're running down the field. If you're not running down the field there, your life might be completely different. Have you ever thought about that? Well, I mean, this added. I mean, this has added a lot to my life, no doubt about it. I mean, I have a lot of fun, a lot of conversation, and and just to be part of the play that uh, most people consider the greatest play in NFL history, and, and I guess for a number of reasons, it's, I mean, like, it's an honor. And uh, But once again, that goes back to Joe, um, where, you know, Joe yelling at us, go to the ball, go to the ball, and I... I tell people when I was at Penn State, I never paid attention to it, right? And then when I went to the Steelers, all of a sudden I got a little smart. And and from the first practice there, I went to the ball all the time. And in that play, I uh, was supposed to be blocking, and Bradshaw had to scramble. And I released just to be an outlet pass, and Bradshaw threw. And you're right. And And I just want you to know that in my mind – the same, go to the ball. And so when, when Bradshaw threw the ball, my mind's go to the ball. And from that point and until I'm run, running down the sidelines, my mind's completely blank. <laughs> I mean, I have no recollection well, of anything. Well, uh, I'm curious about how that play impacted not just your life. I mean, obviously, you be, you became famous for it, and uh, and then um, and four Super Bowls come on that, and NFL Hall of Fame, Super Bowl MVP, all that kind of stuff. But I'm wondering how which, it, which, which took more than one play, right? I understand. <laughs> I know you're a little sensitive about that, and understandably so. I, I it's a good point. But my, my, I'm curious about your your mindset. Were you that optimistic before that play, or did that play make you optimistic? And is it 
which is it, the chicken or the egg, when it comes to your optimistic mindset and good things happening? Because this is where you and I differ. I, I'm, I have a pessimistic outlook, and bad things seem to happen to me. So I'm, I'm trying to learn from you. So can you, can you give me some insight on that? Boy, um, I'm trying to think what type of insight I can give you on that. No, but you, you're, you, you do consider yourself to be an optimistic person, right? Very much so. And right. have you always been that way, or did the play, did the Immaculate Reception make you more so? You know what? Uh, I, I guess I've been optimistic, I guess. I've never been a pessimistic person. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I have never... You know, when I look when I, when I look at my life, uh, uh, when I look at the things that happened, a lot of it wasn't planned, and opportunity presented itself in each stage of my life, and I made that opportunity happen. And why that opportunity presented itself, yeah. I, I have I have no idea. And uh, but it but it did, and as I said, at each stage, I made that opportunity take me to the next level of opportunity. Then I was able to make that happen, and took me to the next level of opportunity. And and uh, and so I guess I look at it where we all have opportunities at a, at a certain point and can you make it happen and I've always been one to work at it to make it happen and uh, uh, and I guess I've been very fortunate at that now now sure you know we have some failures everybody has failures at failures at times but I throw that aside and uh and I keep going because, you know, I have to admit, I do believe that there'll be another opportunity shown to me somewhere. And do I see it? And then can I make it happen? That's a good answer. I, I have two more questions for you. One's football, one's politics. The football question is, I'm curious as to, because you watch a lot of football. You're a big fan all these years later. And I love football, but I'm having a tough time, especially with the NFL. I don't find the NFL that interesting anymore. Um, there's a lot of reasons. Frankly, you know, when I, I grew up watching you guys, and so, you know, I, every year you knew. You're rooting against us. Right, I was rooting against you. <laughs> I, I hated you when I was a kid because I was an Eagle fan, and you were always running out of bounds. But, uh, but um, and we could never tackle you. But, so, but, um, but, but at least we knew. Who was on the team? We knew it was Franco and Rocky and Bradshaw and Lynn Swan and Stallworth. We even knew your center for having so who knows a center? I mean, and, 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 and you guys were the same guys for seven, eight, nine years. You always knew you were going to be good. You, you loved to hate you. Uh, and that, you know, that, that wasn't, you know, you guys were unique, but there were all other teams that were somewhat similar to you in that era, the Cowboys and, and, and what have you. You don't have that anymore. I mean, the Patriots are a dynasty, but um, but it's not the same. I mean, it's team, the players change every other year. Uh, fantasy football seems to be, you know, what people care more about than the teams. The style of play, to me, is not as interesting. 
And um, and let me throw another thing in there as I'm throwing because your, your answer is going to be like ten minutes long. I know now, um, but you know, in, even in college football, we've we're in the middle of the bowl season. We've seen four major stars bow out of playing bowl games because of either fear of injury or minor injury, which I don't think ever would have happened in your era. Uh, and so I guess I'm curious. What do you make of what, all that I just said, and, and has your enthusiasm for the game diminished because of any of those reasons, or has it not? You know what? My enthusiasm uh, hasn't diminished, and and like, sure, sometimes we complain about things, uh, just like last week when, uh, you know, when a, uh, uh, I'm trying to think what team it was, but the defensive tackle took the running back and slammed him on the ground. They gave that guy a penalty for slamming a run. I'm, I'm like, what? <laughs> and, and you know, when I see stuff like that, you know, that's very frustrating. Right. And, uh, you know, this guy playing football, he's tackling the guy, and he throws the guy down, and they, unnecessary roughness, right. you, you know what I mean? And, and, and so, like, I'm hoping the NFL can, can correct that sort of stuff. But... Uh, like the balance of teams, uh, you know, sometimes I think that there aren't enough strong teams out there, and and uh, but a lot of it is on quarterbacks. And uh, you know, are there enough quarterbacks to really go around right. to make a lot of these teams great? You know, uh, talking about New England, I mean, I mean Brady's been right. I mean, what can you say? I mean. Just phenomenal. But he's phenomenal. a one, but he's a one man dynasty. I mean, right, right. It, it, and for that long right. of a period, you right. know what I mean. And he's still right. doing it. And, and but uh, you guys were a team. I mean, you were a team dynasty. I mean, right. I mean and frankly, you know, you know, Bradshaw was really not even a, a, the biggest part of that whole thing. But, you know I mean? but, but but it's but it's hard to keep that together now because free agency b- because right. the money is so big. We didn't right. have free agency during our time, and I mm-hmm. tell people. I'm glad we didn't, right. because what you said, Ray, we'll keep our team together. I'd rather have the four championships, you know, than have, you know, $50 million in the bank. And, and like, that's the truth. You know, I like wow. the four championships. Do you think many guys would say that today? Yeah. You, say, you think many guys would, in the NFL would say that today? They'd rather have the four championships than the $50 million? Uh, you know, like, I would think so. I, yeah. I doubt and, it. No, no, like, I wouldn't say that if I you know, played for a team like Cleveland or something like that, you know, <laughs> where you play there and, and you don't win anything. But right. but having those four championships and uh, and, and, and the run that, that we had and the style of football that we had, uh, uh, I mean, that was just a remarkable run, and it was and it was fun. And, and the fans were incredible. Right. When we look back at what we had, you know, you – Look back at all the things. The fan clubs that we had were incredible. Right. The terrible towel. And, 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 and you think of all those things that developed out of the 70s, you know, the whole Steeler Nation thing. and uh, But that's never going to happen again because the world has changed. We're so fragmented now and our attention spans are so short and everybody moves on. That's a very special situation that's never going to be duplicated. It was, uh, it, it was very special. Yeah. Uh, but as I mentioned, uh, to me, I, I still love the game. Uh, yeah. You know, sometimes you see a bad game. Right. It's like, uh, but, but, but as of late, there's been some great games. Yeah. And, and that's still a game last week. 
you know, against the Ravens. Right. Come on. Now, that was incredible. And everybody had to enjoy that type of game. And, 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 and the sense of football that Antonio Brown had to put his arm across the goal line, knowing, knowing the situation, you know, and, and those kind of things make you, you know, just makes you feel good when it goes down that last second like that. And, uh, and just as we talked earlier with Penn State football, you know, what it has done to bring the enthusiasm back, you know what I mean? Just that, that feeling and like that school pride because everybody's try to try to tear us down. Everybody's been tearing us down and and tearing the football program down and but yet now we see how much this really means to us, what our legacy means to us. That no football does that, that this now has helped rise us up and and, you know, we're wearing our stuff proudly, you know. See all these Penn Staters around L.A. now wearing their stuff very proudly and feeling good about it. So uh, so when you look at what this sports means to so many people and, and, and what it does, it's, it's just a great game. And, uh, and you know, it's great to have been part of it to you know play that Penn State and play with the Steelers and now being a fan and and I'm in, enjoying being a fan very much and enjoying being here in California last question uh, Franco so last time you and I got together it was just before the presidential election that day you would actually campaign with Hillary Clinton and as we got together for dinner, I, um, I asked you how confident you were in, in her victory. And, and I don't know, remember your exact words, but you were pretty confident. Uh, I was confident that she was going to win. Uh, I, I was no fan of and am no fan of Donald Trump. Um, what was your reaction when Trump won? And what do you make of, of what the heck happened there? You know what? I wish I had the answers. There's no doubt about it. But uh, as I tell people, the... People voted, and and he's our president. He's my he's my president, and uh, so uh, there's nothing more I can really say. And but how shocked were you? Oh uh, no, I was, uh, you know, I was shocked. <laughs> but uh, but but things like that happen, and because um, you, you know how. It's like asking you how shocked were you when he won the Republican nomination? I wasn't that shocked. Um, I mean, after initially, I didn't think it was going to happen. But by November of last year, I started saying that there was a very good chance it was going to happen. I did not think he would win the general election. Uh, and I did not think he was going to Pennsylvania. I mean, Pennsylvania, I always thought was going to be the key. And in, I don't think you know this, but I met Trump. The only time I met Trump, we talked about Joe Paterno. And uh, he talked about how much Pennsylvania loves him because of his support of Joe Paterno. <laughs> and it was very obvious in retrospect that he was already, this was in 2014, that he was already thinking about Pennsylvania and running for president and how, and how Joe Paterno uh, might be able to help him on the edges a little bit. Um, he's not a dumb guy, but I, I do believe that he uh, is not qualified to be president. And 
it'll be interesting to see what happens with that. Although you, you and I can agree on one thing. If, if he were to one day honor Joe Paterno with a Presidential Medal of Freedom or something, then, then maybe we would, uh, we would both feel better about him. Um, but um, with that being said, though, you know, you're a Democrat, I'm a Republican, and as I've already mentioned, you and I are, are very different uh, personalities and very different uh, backgrounds. But I, I have really um, in, very much enjoyed getting to know you over the last five years. I admire what you've done here. Uh, you have uh, been a pillar of strength for me, and you deserve an enormous amount of credit for allowing uh, this situation, which is a massive injustice, to not go completely uh, unfought. And to that, and for that, I thank you, and uh, I really appreciate everything you've done, Franco. And it's been an honor uh, working alongside you on this story and getting to know you. You're a really amazing guy, and I and thank you so much for your time today. But just one more thing, John. Yeah. I want you on the golf course. I'm not done yet. <laughs> this is not done until I play you in golf. And I can't wait. Well, but you, you know why? Because I know you think you're going to win. <laughs> I know I'm going to win. but oh, you, you, now, now he's optimistic. No, I can be optimistic <laughs> about things that I know a lot about. Um, but you ducked me. I mean, granted, the weather didn't work out anyway, but you ducked me. On, I mean, when are we ever going to play golf? If, you're, if Penn State makes the Rose Bowl and you can't play golf, when are we ever going to make that happen? No, it's going to happen. That's right. one thing I want to do. So, All right. Okay? So That's a deal. Get ready. All right. Thanks, Franco. <laughs> All right, John. So good luck to uh, Franco Harris and his Penn State Nittany Lions. I'm hoping that uh, tomorrow I will be attending the Rose Parade with my wife and my daughter. I have created a sign or had had Kinko's create a sign that uh, declares Joe Paterno's innocence, which uh, my daughter Grace has already posed with once, and I tweeted a photo of that out. I took that sign with me to the hotel where Franco Harris was staying when I did the interview. One, because I wanted him to see it. And two, I was curious as to what kind of reaction I would get from people who were staying there because I presumed that they would mostly be Penn Staters, and sure enough, they were. And I I came down from Franco's hotel room after doing the interview, and in the lobby there of the Los Angeles Hotel, very nice hotel in in downtown Los Angeles, there must have been a couple of hundred people, almost all of whom appeared to be Penn Staters. And someone recognized me and came up uh, to shake my hand for for what I had done uh, on this story for the last several years, which which is very nice, but it's kind of like being congratulated on doing the stupidest thing you've ever done in your life because that's how I feel. I mean, it's the best work of my life, but it was the dumbest thing I've ever done to get involved and just ask my wife. She'll be the first person to, to tell you that because this was an unwinnable fight. The truth, unfortunately, unlike what Franco said in the interview, I, I don't think the truth, at least in this case, has any power at all. Uh, the mythology is going to win this, barring some sort of miracle. But anyway, the interesting part of this story is, so he, the person who came up to me and shook my hand wanted to see the sign, so I started to hold up the sign. Kind of like curious as to how the people in the lobby would react, and I was blown away. There was a spontaneous, immediate, very strong applause, sustained applause for a sign that simply said Joe Paterno was innocent, exclamation point, framingpaterno.com. And had I wanted to milk it, which might surprise people, but (laughs) my ego is not 
in need of that kind of gratification, so I didn't. In fact, I kind of downplayed it. Had I wanted to milk it, I'm pretty sure I could have gotten a standing ovation out of the deal. I mean, that's how thirsty people were for some semblance of alternative narrative and some semblance of justice on this story. And by the way, how positive people are who are closest to the story and know it best that this was all bullcrap, what you heard in the news media. Total bullcrap. Now, even this group probably doesn't realize that all of it was bullcrap because they've got brainwashed into believing the Sandusky portion because it was politically correct to do so. But that was really interesting to me. And, you know, something, just to, by the way, further indication of just how bullcrap this whole narrative is, how nonsensical it is, something happened over the Christmas holidays that further proved it. And the news media, of course, blew the story. I, I doubt you heard about this, but it did get some national publicity. There is a guy named Anthony Spinelli who is an accuser of Jerry Sandusky's. But he was an accuser at trial, and he did not get a settlement from Penn State, which is pretty tough to do. You have to be really lacking credibility to not get a settlement from Penn State, or more likely, you have to not be part of the Second Mile charity to not get a settlement from Penn State, and that was the case with Anthony Spinelli. Anthony Spinelli's claim, 28 years after the fact, was that as a 16-year-old star quarterback in high school in Massachusetts, he was abused at a Jerry Sandusky football camp. Now, right off the bat, you ought to go, what? 16 years old? He's not gay? He never told anybody about this? What? I mean, but okay, fine. I guess it's theoretically possible. So the reason why I'm mentioning this is Spinelli got arrested for attempted murder for a second time in his life. Now, this guy has been trying to get criminal charges filed against Sandusky, who's already in prison, because it's his only avenue to forcing a settlement from Penn State. That's what he really wants. He wants the money. Penn State's not going to give it to him because he wasn't part of the charity and because, frankly, they probably don't, even they realize, wait a minute, <laughs> this guy is full of crap. His story doesn't make any sense. He's he attempted murder once. Now he's attempted murder a second time. But he's gotten a lot of news coverage and some glowing stories written about him. Oh, his life was ruined because he was a Sandusky victim at age 16, except the first time he got arrested for attempted murder, he never said anything about it as an adult, by the way, many years later. In fact, at that time, he blamed drugs for why he tried to kill a guy. I don't know what he's blaming this. I'm sure he's going with the Sandusky excuse, uh, excuse because after Penn State put $100 million on the table, guess what happened? People like Anthony Spinelli came forward. So I started to investigate Spinelli myself. I spoke to a high school teammate of his who was at the same camp with Spinelli. Says the whole story is bullcrap. He never even saw Jerry Sandusky and definitely wasn't abused. I also spoke with a woman, interviewed her on the record, who said Spinelli raped her as a freshman in high school well before he ever even met, even allegedly met, Jerry Sandusky. And by the way, she's not the only one. I have Facebook messages from her discussing a, another rape that Spinelli committed on another high school classmate 
again before he ever met Jerry Sandusky. I mean, this story couldn't be more bullcrap. It's bullcrap on top of bullcrap on top of bullcrap with no evidence, no logic, no nothing. Yet the news media still reports this week, Sandusky accuser, or maybe even Sandusky victim, charged with attempted murder. And the implication is the abuse from Sandusky caused it. Well, not only was there no abuse from Sandusky, but that's not what happened. It's the opposite. Everything about this case is the opposite. He's creating the abuse because he once attended a camp and he needs an excuse for why his once promising life has turned into shit and why he's now a two-time attempted murderer and he's hoping to get paid. His very, very tenuous Titus Sandusky is the only way he can possibly get his life back and it convinced his dad and his family that this was why he was a fuck-up. But that's this whole story in a nutshell. But the good guys are never going to win on this one, partially because the good guys aren't even united. I mean, let me give you another story of how insane this story is. So the number one reason why this whole thing went down the way that it did is that there was a complete divide after Joe Paterno got fired in November of 2011 and Penn Staters had a massive self-interest to throw Jerry Sandusky under the bus because they don't want to be seen as pedophile protectors. And that included the Paterno family. And Joe Paterno's son, Scott, who is a fat fuck moron, who I've dealt with extensively and has lied his hairy ass off about me publicly in bizarre ways, all because he knows I know what the real story is, and I know his real role in fucking this whole thing up. That's what's really driving this with Scott. Scott Paterno was effectively the person who who messed this whole thing up from the start because he bought into something he knew nothing about, and he convinced his father, Joe, to go along with the prosecution in a well-intended attempt to try to protect his dad from negative publicity and potential prosecution himself. Well, it was all bullshit. None of it was real. And now Scott's been trying to protect that fat ass of his for the last five years. Well, here's how bad it is. I found out this weekend that Scott Paterno, think about how crazy this is, is actively, actively calling people he suspects might or already have donated to the defense fund for Jerry Sandusky's appeal to ask slash tell them to not give money. Now, if you know anything about the story, that's insane. I mean, if Jerry really is guilty, which he's not, but Scott needs to believe that he is, then what difference does a new trial make? I mean, first of all, it's never going to happen because the politics won't allow it. But what the hell does Scott care? And by the way, in theory, the only thing that can happen is good for Scott's dad's legacy because if somehow there is a new trial and the truth comes out, if Jerry's innocent, then Joe has to be innocent. It's the only hope at this point. And Scott's actively, out of spite, pettiness, vengeance, a lot of it probably targeted towards me, bizarrely, actively trying to get people not to spend money their own money on a simply a defense fund. But therein lies the essence of why this whole thing got lost and the truth can't win because even the, the people on the 
right side are all fighting with each other, and now the story is dead, it's old, no one cares, and there's no way to reverse it. Unless, by the way, Donald Trump steps in, which is the newest theory among those who are at the highest level of my side, which I find to be actually somewhat plausible since Trump has made some positive statements about Joe Paterno and that whole fake scandal. And so maybe someday that boy, that wouldn't that be ironic if Donald Trump ends up uh, reinstituting Joe Paterno's presidential medal of freedom, which he got taken away after the scandal hit and somehow Trump ends up fixing this whole thing. Cause frankly, that's what it would take at this point is an act of the presidency and only Trump, for better or for worse, only Trump would have the balls or the insanity to do that. Speaking of, of Scott Paterno, one of the many mistakes he made was he ended up paying a guy by the name of Jim Clemente, whose name may sound familiar to you if you are a fan of the TV show Criminal Minds or if you happen to have seen a two-part special on CBS about the John Bonet Ramsey case. Well, Scott Paterno needing to create a narrative that would somehow save his father while also throwing Jerry Sandusky as far under the bus as possible, paid Jim Clemente, former FBI profiler, to write a report about how Jerry Sandusky was guilty, but no one knew it because he was a nice guy offender. And there's no evidence here because (laughs) Jerry is just a mastermind. He's brilliant at it, and he fooled everybody for 40 years. And, um, you know, this is just what happens. This is how pedophiles are. And, by the way, boys never, ever, 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 ever fib lie about being abused, even as teenagers, which is what the essence of this case was, and even when they're being paid millions of dollars to do so as adults. That never happens, according to Jim Clemente. Well, that's ridiculous uh, to anyone who knows anything about common sense. But Clemente and I have dealt with each other extensively, and I've learned a long time ago that Clemente is a not only a fraud, but a very bad person and a liar. I remember I was moments away, literally in the limo ride over in New York City to CNN Studios to do an interview with Piers Morgan after I'd interviewed Jerry Sandusky in prison. And my intention, after having done the Today Show in the morning, was to use the Piers Morgan show to use the name of the key person in the whole case, a guy by the name of Alan Myers, who, um, it's an incredibly long story, but basically Alan Myers could fix this whole thing tomorrow if he just told the damn truth about what really happened, and I have proof of that. Well, no one had known Alan Myers' name, and I would, and since the Piers Morgan show was live, I was going to use the name. And Jim Clemente knew that because I, at the time, I trusted Jim. I thought he was one of the good guys. I thought he knew what he was talking about, which was a huge mistake on my part. And I had told Jim, "Look, I'm gonna. I want you to know, I'm gonna use Alan Meyer's name, and I hope you're okay with that." And he actually told me he was. So he calls me just before I'm going over to the studio, and he says, "John, he's like breathless." John, I need you to do me a favor. Don't use Alan Meyer's name. I'm like, why, Jim? Because I, I found out that Alan is really upset about what's happening with what you're doing, and it's really, you know, it would be a really important favor to me, and it would be good for him, and I just don't know how he can handle it if you say his name on uh, national television. I'm paraphrasing, but this is a pretty good recollection of what happened. I said, well, look, Jim, here's the deal. He's already made himself a public figure in this case by writing op-ed pieces in favor of Jerry before his arrest. I have every right to say his name, 
But if you think that this is going to benefit the cause for truth here, I'll do it. But I have to have at least a promise that he'll talk to me about why this is. And if I'm wrong, please tell me. And just look, bottom line is I'll agree, but you got to get me a conversation with him. Jim says, yeah, okay, fine. So I go on the Piers Morgan show. Stupidly, I don't say the name. The, The whole interview goes haywire. It's hilarious. You should go see it on YouTube. But it was basically my last chance, unbeknownst to me at the time, to make Alan Meyer's name an issue. Well, it turns out that the whole Alan Meyer story was bullshit. Jim had never had any contact with Alan Myers. Even the, the, the guy he told me who had had contact with Alan Myers lied and had never had any contact with Alan Myers. And he was simply just doing it because he's a victim's rights advocate and I guess had caught wind that I was going to do this or might do this and wanted to stop me. So they basically conspired to lie to me and use my good nature against me, my willingness to trust people against me. And that's Jim Clemente. Well, the reason I'm mentioning this is that this week, Jim Clemente was part of a $750 million lawsuit against CBS for that show about John Benet Ramsey's murder that Jim hosted that I referenced. And you can find out all you want about this at freespeechbroadcasting.com because I wrote an extensive article with an interview with the Ramsey family attorney about the lawsuit and about the case itself, that if you care at all about the way the news media handles these types of situations or about the John Benet Ramsey case in and of itself, I strongly urge you to read. Now, I'll admit that I have it out for Jim uh, in in a global way, but it in no way, shape, or form impacted my reporting on this case or this lawsuit. It is all fact-based, and Jim is as wrong on this, maybe more wrong if it's possible, as he was on the Penn State Sandusky case, as well as other cases. In fact, I'm having a tough time finding any case where Jim Clemente has ever been right about anything. And this is a guy who the media takes exceedingly seriously and is hosting major two-part, I think it was four hours long, miniseries, docu-series, whatever you want to call them, on CBS on the JonBenet Ramsey case. Now, hopefully, CBS is going to pay a very severe price because the conclusion of that docu-series was that JonBenet Ramsey's brother, Burke, killed her 20 years ago this week. And I know a lot of people like that theory. For some reason, that makes people feel good because I guess he's, he's a young boy. It was out of anger. It wasn't planned. The parents were then just uh, somehow protecting their own son, and that's why they created the cover-up. It's a nice fairy tale. It's all bullshit. It did not happen that way. And, and I was someone who believed that the Ramses must be guilty for many, 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 many years. In fact, up until the last few months. But now I've done more research and realized just how wrong the news media has been and is capable of being and and how a rush to judgment can influence the way a police department will handle a case like this, and this was a classic rush to judgment, there's a much better explanation, even as strange as it is, that does not include the Ramsey family being guilty, and certainly not Burke, because here's all you need to know about Burke. Burke didn't kill his daughter, his, his sister, because the Ramseys, his parents, would never... They would know immediately that that's what happened. 
They would never have let him do an interview as a nine-year-old boy who was a little strange to begin with alone with police. And they did that three times, including the morning of the murders themselves and before JonBenet's body had ever been found. Now, they have to know already because there's a ransom note that theoretically, although I don't believe this happened, the mom, Papsy Ramsey, would have had to have written. So there's no possible way if this is all, the cover-up's all very much already in play. So therefore, they would know that Burke did this, either by accident or by not. There's no way they would allow a police interview under those circumstances alone, and there's no way a nine-year-old boy who's socially awkward would be able to completely 100% fool a police officer that he had nothing to do with this because he had no clue. The police officer was completely convinced he had no clue that his sister had even died at that point because the body had not been found. Not to mention the way she ended up dying is completely 100% inconsistent with an accident done by the mom, the dad, or by Bert. So if you're interested in the case, go to freespeechbroadcasting.com and check out the article that I wrote on that. And as well at freespeechbroadcasting.com, you can check out all of the past archived episodes of the old radio show. Those are going to stay there. Uh, This ends our first podcast of The World According to Zig. Make sure that uh, you share this because uh, the only way that people are going to ever know about this podcast basically is from word of mouth and people like you. If you find it valuable, make sure you tell your friends and you share it on social media. We'll see how this goes. We're going to be doing this on a weekly basis. Every Sunday around 9 p.m. Eastern, we'll be producing and releasing about two hours of content you will not get anywhere else. And stay up with us on my Twitter page, my Facebook page, and freespeechbroadcasting.com. Until next Sunday, make sure you remember, if you sleep, and when you sleep, you use sheets, do yourself a favor and listen to this important message. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.